Well, what's amazing, Daniela, is it's not even, you know, I think the same thing all the time, but it's like, let's just bring us to the present moment because mm-hmm. you pull probably 10 people off the street and, and talk about the United States empire. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, I've had people say, like, are you talking about Star Wars? Like, I don't understand <laughs> using the word empire is so confusing when you look back uh, not even 100 years ago and United States officials, including the president and his cabinet, were talking about renaming the United States to Imperial America or Greater America simply because of the acquisition of territories at the time, let alone the thousand plus bases that, you know, we have all over the planet now. So. Let's pivot to a little bit about this, um, because I'm really curious of your insight as a historian of of just echoes of the past. Like, for example, I mean, we hear this old adage like history repeats itself all the time. Of course, a little simplistic, but I think a more accurate one is that history echoes sure. throughout the present. Um, so I guess talk about talk about how fucked up things are today and how like how do you compare this bizarre period two times past? I think one big difference in terms of empire building is that the U.S. emerged at a time when empires were becoming less popular, at least outward empire, empire in the traditional sense, which was uh, you go in, you conquer another country, you add their land base to your land base, and now those people are your subject. And you know that was the traditional way of uh, conquer- building an empire. That started becoming less palatable, both because you, it kind of was too, it was too obvious. It was becoming less accepted. This idea that just naked force going in and taking over was the way to go, and also in a sneaky way, because people started figuring out that you can get the same benefits without having to actually take responsibility than for all the people you have conquered for actually having to provide infrastructure and all of that. You can just set up a puppet government, squeeze whatever resources you want out of the nation and not have to deal with them. I mean, there's one story that's actually trippy. When you think about the last major war that led to territorial acquisition for the United States on a massive scale, like when you think about like Mexican-American War in 1846 to 1848, you know, U.S. acquired a ton of land. Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, plus a bunch of little pieces of states all around it, from Oklahoma to Nevada and so on. The thing was, there was at one point this debate of saying, well, we defeated Mexico. Why not just take over the whole thing? Why not just go all the way down to the bottom where it borders Guatemala and take over the entire place? Wow. And one of the uh, one of the reasons why Mexico didn't have to deal with that was because some it was actually quote unquote thanks to racism, because some people are like whoa 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 if we take over Mexico then all those people become our citizens. Oh wow! And no, we don't want all those brown people to be our citizens. So how about we can take as much land as possible with as few Mexicans as possible? So if we cut the border right there where it is, there that's a lot of land and. You know, those places, don't get me wrong, there are definitely Mexican people living there, but not nearly to the population density that you found a little further south. So it's like, how about we cut the line there? We got the land, we got fewer Mexicans, and then we can just do whatever we want with the Mexican government to get resources out of there. And that's and that became the model for how you do empire in the late 1800s, early 1900s, less in the open, 
less just taking over a land and adding it to your land base, and more just indirect exploitation. It's still an empire, but it's uh, it's in a less recognizable form. Yeah, and, and then when you couple in the cultural influence and um, homogenization and hegemony, it, it becomes very all-encompassing. I mean, you look at the financialization and the privatization and these debt models that are imposed on these countries, it, it becomes really really nuts because it's far beyond just the military military excuse me it's far beyond the military control that's exerted at these points around the world and i i love that you dive into these incredible chapters of history because i'm so passionate about history i'm so passionate about it because it shapes everything that we understand today um, but it seems like people have sort of a historical amnesia about like what precipitated this current moment i think in part the lack of historical political education in this country, maybe the 24-hour news cycle. Like, I don't know, but I love that you're a history buff and I love that you study these patterns. And I guess when we're looking at empire, I mean, I guess the last big empire that was folded into ours was the British Empire, which Mm -hmm. simply waned and fell into position as like a junior collaborator under U.S. rule, never really had to face collapse. Like, we've never seen anything like what we're going to see here in the yeah. world, not if, but when, and especially entering this new era of multipolarity with Russia and China as counterbalancing forces against U.S. hegemony, all of which will inevitably come into great conflict and war with each other again. But, Daniele, there's a very unique difference here, and that's the vast technological resources and institutional network to ensure control and essentially longevity like this is global. Yeah, that's the big difference with the past. That be, you know, civilizations have uh, risen and collapsed a thousand times before, but every time the collapse was regional, and you know the ripples would be felt, but it was still a regional thing. Now we are in a state where everything is so interdependent on one another: our culture, our products, our everything. It's that an imperial collapse is not something that you can say, oh, well, well, it happened in that one area of the world and that's it. It's going to affect everything. And that's the part that's a little scarier because whereas if uh, there's a collapse somewhere and there's, when there's a global collapse and you're talking about an environment that's already stretched beyond the carrying capacity, an environment that's highly polluted, uh, you know, these are, kind of existential threats, more so than they were before, where it sure has, you know, certainly felt like the end of the world if you are right in the middle of the events. But if you were a continent over, you would not feel it as much. This, on the other hand, is something that we are bound to feel across the globe. I mean, even the fact that even if you look at COVID, like something that starts as a virus in one place and in about three and a half seconds is everywhere, that shows you how everything is interconnected. You know, even before with uh, major epidemics, they would spread, but they would spread over years. You know, it would take quite a while for things to get from point A to point B. Now it's everything happened immediately, which means that the collapse, unless you have immediate easy solutions, uh, you are kind of screwed at a global level, which is a fairly terrifying prospect. <laughs> what similarities do you see with, I don't even know, I mean, just the fact, uh, like we're talking about the imperial collapse, like the, uh, how uh, it does seem 
kind of like the death throes, like in a weird sense. I think things are becoming increasingly desperate. People are becoming unhinged and uncoupled and untethered from like a plane of reality that we can all agree on. But it does seem like the establishment has also learned from like Rome, right? I mean, these people are, are extremely smart. They are they are students of history as well, and they have learned from the mistakes of the past. And so they that is also kind of a scary thought. It's like how how far is this going to go? And I guess what similarities do you see today compared to empires that have fallen in the past? I guess that's the thing, though, that I sometimes you got to wonder about people's intelligence because if you look <laughs> at something like ancient Rome, there were you could see the signals that things were about to go down the drain from 300 years earlier, you know, and it's like, and there are people who clearly called attention to it. And the people in position of power regularly squashed it in a way that it wasn't just evil, it was also stupid. Because it's like, it's one thing that you are evil, like twirling your mustache while you are just thinking about getting your own out of greed and screwing over everyone else. But that doesn't really work if if the whole society that you depend on collapses and your wealth and your position of privilege and everything else is tied to that society. And they are not taking those basic steps to ensure that that society will survive, maybe in a modified form, by allow that to happen. You know, Roman ultra-wealthy landowners never did all those land reforms that would have probably kept the Republic going a whole lot longer, prevented it from turning into an empire, could have done a lot in that direction. And it was visible to everybody, and they never did out of pure damn greed. And sometimes I feel that similar things happen today because when you look at something, I mean, there are certain things that are not even shouldn't be political in a strict sense, in the sense that if you think about it, regardless of your political philosophies, religion, or whatever ideology, nobody likes to drink poisoned water or like to have uh, horrendous toxin in the air you breathe. Those are basic things that we should all agree on, regardless of politics, right? It's like... If you want to ensure that your kids and your grandkids will get to enjoy certain things you have, you want to make sure that at least the basic natural resources around you survive. The fact that we're doing such an awful job at it, and again, this is something that will hurt everybody, of course, hurting poor people first, but at the end of the day, it's going to hurt everybody. There's no capsule you can build where you can isolate yourself from a collapsing ecosystem. They're just... So even the richest, wealthiest, most elite person is actually playing a damn game by not doing those things that would allow them to continue being in a position of power and success for generations to come. It's almost like short-term greed overrides even their own self-interest if you take a slightly longer view of time. As long as it's, uh, you know, nobody's saying you need to be smart or enlightened or sweet, even purely out of short of, of your own self-interest, you should want to create certain certain setups so that the environment thrives, so that we don't live in a polluted place, so that we don't mine the basis of a society through social conflict. So, you know, that would be the smart way to be at the top and running the show. But these folks don't even seem to be good at that, you know, which is like, come on, man. It's like, uh, it's a pretty low bar to ask to look out of your own self-interest first, but asking you to do it long term. 
And even that seems like too much to ask. I want to put a pin in that because I want to expand on that. But first, I mean, it, it is so funny that we keep going back to Rome when we think of like the pinnacle of like what empire encompasses and what it depicts and how it inevitably ends. But why was it so hedonistic? Um, you know, there is this like very cartoonish aspect of it, you know, the vomitoriums, the mass sure. orgies, like, yeah, I get that we kind of our society, you know, we like to see that like, first of all, all the violence is externalized. A lot of it is. And then a lot of it, of course, is committed by the state, right? You know, where we all see on TV, but there is this sort of detachment where people back then were just like, there's like a very like over the top. Was that just like, (laughs) like empire baby syndrome? Like, I guess you can kind of compare it to how it is today, but it just seems like very over the top. Yeah. I mean, the role models just completely psychotic society when you look at it from the those guys their relationship with violence was disturbing to say the least you know they thrived thanks to violence because they were more effective at it than anybody else they their culture was insanely violent not just from the military standpoint but also i mean think about that the father of the family the head of the household had the power of life and death on everybody in his household you could beat your kids to that and never run into any problem. You could, uh, uh, provided that your wife's uh, family wasn't too powerful, you could kill your wife without anybody looking twice. That was that kind of, you know, for entertainment, you go see people torn apart by lions and the gladiators. And those guys took a passion for violence uh, just a tad too far. Which kind of makes sense, considering that their whole society was based on uh, military expansion. And in some way, it was a reflection of a society that whose success was based on uh, successful violence, of being able to dish it out, being able to take it without being freaked out, being able to... So that culture was just immersed in violence in every aspect of their lives. Uh, ours, there's definitely a lot of violence. There's definitely, but you know, in many cases, because uh, most people are not going to be serving in Germany tomorrow to extend the boundaries of the empire, uh, a lot of it is more movies and video games, as in the culture, but it's a lot of talk. You know, for many people, is uh, they have a very violent imagination, but most of the time, they are not going to actually deal with it in their day to day life the same way. Right. And and a lot of it, even though there's a lot of violence being committed and perpetuated, like, for example, I mean, war is just a constant state. It's mm-hmm. never really stopped. Yeah. And but of course, a, a lot of people are propagandized, um, yeah. totally conditioned to in this abstraction where that doesn't even exist, of course, because the bombs aren't dropping on us. But at the same time, it's this propaganda model that has become so sophisticated. First of all, I mean, even learning from the last 30 years, it's it's neoliberalism packaged in humanitarianism um, yeah. because, of course, the Bush administration's attempts to expand empire were, you know, people look back at that in horror. And so now I feel like they've they've learned even from themselves in the past couple of decades is what I'm saying. And, and then when you couple that with the sophistication of data mining and personalizing um, our profiles, these psychological profiles that are collected and sold, preying on our subconscious mind, integrated for political mechanisms of social control. But despite all of this, the messaging and disinformation probably contains a lot of like rudimentary similarities that you've seen echoes of in the past as well. 
For sure. And you're, you know, you're absolutely right. You have to figure out a way to tailor it to today because, uh, I mean, even if you just go back a few decades without going back that far, for a while, it was an easy campaign because all you had to do is that you're against communism and whatever needs to be done is because of the red threat. And then, you know, you had a pass on whatever you did because it's like, oh, it's because we need to stop communism and, you know, how evil communism is and as such, anything, you know, what are, does that mean you're a communist? If you're against us, that means you're you're cheerleading for Stalin. And it's like, well, no, sometimes it's slightly more complicated than that. But in the logic of the Cold War, there was no such thing, right? It was just, you're either on one side of the line and you have to embrace an ultra-right-wing version of American politics, or you are with Stalin. There's nothing. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, and that's actually, like when you look back at some of the ways as... Um, you know, look at, for example, the chairman of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, right, when they were investigating communism. They were asking, how can you tell if somebody's a communist? And, you know, let's say, let's say that you came to the conclusion that communism was truly this evil, terrible thing that needed to be stopped, and you take it seriously. Let's start with that assumption, okay? Then the next step would be that you are after real communism, like the cases that fit that exact image of what we're talking about. The chairman of the House of Un-American Activities Committee came out and said, if anybody said that there is a racial discrimination in this country, they are a communist. And this is, you know, 1950s, where it's in the books, racial discrimination. It's not an opinion, it's a fact. Or, you know, if anybody insists on... Uh, inequality of wealth in the United States, that means you're a communist. And again, you're talking about a society where you have homeless people and billionaires. Of course there's inequality of wealth. That's not even up for debate. It's not even an opinion. That's just like saying the sun is out. But if you say that, then you're a communist and you are on the other side of this. Uh, there's only option A and option B. And if you're not with us, you're against us kind of thing. And that then was used to justify just about every other intervention in Latin America, every other intervention kind of all over the world is, well, they are not with us, so clearly they must be Stalin folks. Despite the fact that half of the time, it had nothing to do with communism. But that was, you know, the easy propaganda way to, to sell it. Today, I think they are missing the good old days of the Cold War, so they have to figure out other ways to package it because that was really simple. Now you have to find other ways. But at the end of the day, it's always the same story, right? Is that there are certain interests that are very well served by continuous wars and they need to get enough people on board or at least not to care about it so that they can keep doing business as usual and reap the benefits of it. Well, it does seem like an extreme level of cognitive dissonance because on one hand, you have like this progressivism that's taken root, like you know, consciousness that has expanded in profound ways about huh. ident gender, identity, um, yeah. you know, equality, like all, even, I don't know, I mean, it, you know what I'm saying? And then at the same time, it's like this capacity for indiscriminate violence that is almost accepted as like a normalized state. Like it's it's almost background noise. Like, I mean, I think the war in Ukraine was an interesting example of how um, the media can agitate and not that I'm discounting people's outrage over it. Of course, it's horrific. But like I said before, war is happening all the time. And so it did seem, um, 
you know, it did seem like the media was was picking this apart from a lot of other things and not giving other things like Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan due time. Um, Not to say that Ukraine is not worthy of coverage, but it was definitely different. Right. And it, it, it is interesting. I mean, it just it's just so interesting, like the level of propaganda and the impact of propaganda that can dissociate yourself from like your own government's actions and gin up um, very, very strong emotions about the other, mm-hmm. about Russia, about China. And even if you have disagreements with those governments all day, chances are you probably know very little about the structure of their society, their political system, the historical context of how all these things happen. And so there is just this incredible exploitation and manipulation of our emotions and our fear, just those innate fears of yeah. not something that's different than us, right? I think that there's so many people who make a living through fear and outrage because they realize that those are even more than sex and violence. Fear and outrage are those things that our brains are wired to. So anything that's scary, you click and see what is what threats do I need to protect myself from? Things that you feel this uh, self-righteous outrage are going to get attention. So there's a ton of people who know that that's how what masses of people are going to consume and they feed it to them 24-7. And it's, you know, it's horrible, but it's like, what are you going to do? Just say you don't have the right to say those things, crack down on, uh, like, freedom of the press. Of course, that's not the idea. But at the same time, you realize, shit, this is not helpful because in a situation where people are not particularly well-educated about issues, having somebody who's screaming fear and outrage all day and feeding them usually by taking some highly selective piece of reality, blowing it out of proportion, stretching it, not including all those aspects of reality that don't fit the deal that will increase fear and outrage, and just dishing it out left and right all day long. People make a living on that. You know, There are plenty of people that I'm sure you can think of, I can think of, who just laugh all the way to the bank. Some of them are true believers, and they do it in the name mm-hmm. of an ideology, some, they do it in the name of no ideology other than making money. And they're like, who cares? I'm feeding all these idiots what they want to hear, and I make money in the process. Great. Of course, in the process of this, making things more awful, nastier, making the political discourse pretty much impossible to address because everybody's just angry beyond imagination and running on stereotypes all day long. And that's that's where we're at. You know, that's uh, and in that sense is one of those cases where something like Internet, which gave us fantastic opportunities and allow many more voices to emerge. Well, unfortunately, beside the good, <laughs> it's qualitative. It doesn't differentiate. Right. There's many great voices that emerge. So thank you, Internet. And then there's also a bunch of shit that comes up that makes life considerably worse for most people. It's like, oh, that's where we are. Yeah, and it, it it is almost overwhelming where it's like the the idea of knowing that the world's information is at your fingertips is almost like it almost like re, it has like a weird reversion back to where you almost want the comfort of like not having the idea that you need to learn everything. I don't even right. know if that makes it. It's like every time you go online, you're peddled with constant news and stories of like tragedy and trauma even if you're not trying to it's like you oh, just yeah. check your email and you're like oh fuck everyone like i mean yep. is that 
is that driving more people to conspiracies and magical thinking and myths having this inundation for sure of information 100 percent. that's why when i go on social media i try to make a point of clicking on picture of cute fluffy puppies <laughs> that click on themselves or stuff like that suddenly by my feed is all uh, fluffy puppies who do funny things, you know, because it's like, uh, if I want to go there and find out what's going on, I will. But I also need not to be bombarded 24-7 through things that make me feel like the whole world is horrible and evil. So I think it's really important for one's mental health sometimes to say, unplug from that. Uh, let's start with the cute puppies. Yeah, especially because it's not natural. Like, n- none of this is naturally how your brain is supposed to um, input information or digest it or anything like that. It's actually pretty unhealthy. And, and there is no assessment. Of course, we are all the guinea pigs in this. And there's no assessment from these tech overlords that are like, you know what, this actually is probably like hurting mental health. Like, oh, maybe we should ease off on that. No, they're just pushing it to the to the limit, dude, because this is all about money. We are just data entry points for the people who are raking it in. Um, but and it's just disturbing, Daniele, because as we're talking yeah. about, I mean, everyone, you know, we are already so alienated. And it's like, what is this doing to fragment us even more? You know, it's just and really trippy to think about. Uh, you're, no, 100%. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree because you have things where, like I was thinking about people who made a career of highlighting the more batshit crazy things going on on the other side of the political divide. And, you know, let's say, take like, I don't know, everybody does it, so it doesn't even matter the example, but what ends up happening is that by casting, what's maybe, you know, if you buy into a left versus right divide, you take something that's like the batshit extremist version of the other side, you shine a spotlight on it, you try to cast it as that's what all of those guys are, which is like, well, no, not really. That's like maybe at most 5% of those guys. But you you start showing how terrible and awful it is. Now you have the guys on the other side who feel that, oh, shit, I actually don't agree with that crazy batshit 5%, but I almost feel like I have to defend them because it's my ideological enemies who are saying uh, this, is, uh, this is my people. So I guess we got to defend them. And then before you know it, what used to be an extremist, batshit, crazy position start becoming the norm because that half of the political spectrum has to defend it because it's been attacked by their enemies. And so in the process, we take the more extremist, disturbing position and actually normalize them in essentially with a trick by saying, this is who you guys are. And then because of the duality of it, you feel the need to defend even the people within, quote unquote, your ideological camp. Realistically, you don't have a whole lot in common with. You look at them and you think, yeah, those people are actually crazy. They have issues. But but if the other guys criticize them, well, I guess I'll have to defend them. And so in the process, the very people who are complaining about, oh, the crazies on the other side, are actually doing the greatest service to increase their numbers by by making it a, an ideological camp kind of thing and by normalizing it among their ideological enemies. So it's a completely perverted kind of game that leads to the opposite of what we want, which is, you know, take people on 
in any ideology where at the absolute extreme scary part and don't pay them so much attention, don't shine the spotlight all the time, like because the process of doing so actually increases their power in a paradoxical kind of way. So to me, like you take like the Jordan Peterson of the world complaining about uh, evil social justice warriors. Actually, I feel that they are the guys who have done the most to normalize that type of idea and to make it more popular and vice versa, because, you know, people do it all over the place. But I think like when people are in these political tribes and they feel the need to defend themselves against their enemies, they will start giving room to folks who theoretically are in their own ideological camp, even though their ideas are clearly not something that most people uh, share at all. Holy shit, there's so much that you just said. I mean, first of all, I heard you saying that you, as a social experiment, kind of, you know, friended a lot of people on Facebook 10 years ago and over the course of the last decade have seen the trend of more negative reinforcement of like the feedback loop perpetuating. Yep. I don't know if it's through the algorithm or what, or if it's just the state of social media and what it does to someone. But I, I thought that that was really fascinating because there's something bizarre about like, how fast the news cycle moves on and it's like like just take for example this horrific massacre that just happened in buffalo that feels like an eternity ago because of how casual and like not only how like common and casual like indiscriminate violence is but like how fast the news cycle moves on it's just like on to the next one like this low level anxiety of like mass death and suffering is like this white noise in your brain and at some point, Danielle, it has to break, like, especially when you incorporate your own suffering and experiences and tragedy that is bound to happen. Yeah, that's why it's so important to, you know, one end, you want to be aware of what's out there. And that's important. And I definitely don't advocate isolating yourself and not watching the news and becoming more ignorant of the realities out there. At the same time, it's important to find a place to feed yourself with things that make you happy, to remind yourself that what you are seeing in outrage sites all day long on the internet is not actual reality. Not everybody is like that out there. And and really to find those things that encourage dialogue, that encourage you to have uh, uh, the ability to have a pleasant conversation, even with people who may not be 100% on board with everything you think, and to bring that to the forefront in terms of our mental health, because clearly none of this stuff is doing us any favor in terms of mental health, both collectively and individually. That was Daniele Balele, host of the podcasts History on Fire and The Drunken Taoist. The full episode with Abby and Daniele is two hours long. It is free and accessible to everyone. You just need to look up the show Dosed with Abby Martin on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, as well as the app Call-In, where Abby hosts this new live show every single week and takes calls from all of you in the live audience. In addition to Daniele, we have done some really incredible episodes on Dosed over the past couple weeks, including Duncan Trussell of Netflix's Midnight Gospel and Adam Conover of the hit show Adam Ruins Everything. Check out this fun little side project we've been doing and stay tuned for some new Empire Files very soon.